the fall of man, how Eve was deceived and Adam willfully sinned against the Lord and went against what he had commanded and the repercussions from that. And as we talked in that, that uh, the ground was cursed, Satan was cursed, the serpent was. Uh, Adam and Eve were told that they would, Adam would have to toil the ground and work it in order to get anything from it. There would be hard labor with it. Uh, Eve would have children, but it would come through difficulty and, and pain. But God didn't curse them specifically. As a matter of fact, he promised that through them, the Messiah would one day come. That, that we talked about that, if you'll remember, that though Satan would bruise his heel, the serpent would bruise the Messiah's heel, the Messiah would crush his head. And we talked about the fact that Adam and Eve latched on to that promise. And here, then afterwards, they have been cast out of the garden, and we pick up our, our walk through Genesis in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. We see here in the very beginning of this, I, 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 I can't help but think that Eve, when she had this son, Cain, when she calls him, she says, I have gotten a man-child. Basically, almost, I've gotten the child, the man that is going to be this Messiah. I can't help but think that that was her thought process as she holds this baby in her hand. And holding on to that promise in verse 3, 15, chapter 3, verse 15 that we looked at last week. That, son, that word Cain literally means, literally means gotten or acquired. Thinking again, I've now gotten this promised one that God told us about. But the second child's name is Abel, and that means vapor or vanity. Now, I don't know exactly why. I mean, I could put a whole lot of speculation into that. The only thing that I can think of is here she thinks she's got this child that's perfect, that's going to be the perfect one, that's going to be the, the one that God has picked to be the Messiah. And any of you that have children, you got though, though they seem perfect, it doesn't take long for you to realize they're not. They're not. And I got to imagine that she started experiencing that with Cain, and maybe that's why she called Abel vanity. I don't know. But we see here that, uh, that Abel, named again means vanity, he became a shepherd. Now, that, and in that time, sheep that they were raising and using was not for food. We don't, we don't get to eat meat as human beings until after the flood. So the reason that they raised sheep at this time was for clothing and for sacrifice. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. He was the one who was working and raising up the food that they were eating. So verse 3, it goes on. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock in the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offerings, but for Cain and for his offerings, he had no regard. Now, one of the things that I love about this part is, again, we see the heart of God right away in this. God didn't cast them out of the garden and then again say, go figure it out, you're on your own. He still desired for them to have fellowship with him, to come and commune with him, to worship him. This 
part that the Hebrew, and again, I, I, I will confess to you completely, I have not taken any Hebrew classes, so I'm going off of commentaries that I'm reading here, but that in the course of time literally means the end of days, which points to the fact that this was a set time, the Sabbath day, that God had set apart, as we talked about when we went through the first couple of chapters of creation. God rested after he had completed the work and set aside that day for a day of rest. And most commentators point to the fact that that is the prescribed time that God set aside to come to worship. We see that come to fruition with when God lays out the law with Moses down the road. But here it seems as though God laid this out from the very beginning. That on the day of rest, on the Sabbath day that I've set apart, you come and meet with me. You worship me at this. And it says that Cain brought an offering to the Lord. He brought it there. It appears again from that that there was a prescribed place that God had outlined already from the very beginning this idea of worship and coming to meet with him and sacrifice. Both Cain and Abel had inherited sin in their nature. It was genetic we, we all have inherited that sin nature from Adam because, because he felt we are born in sin. But we see here, as we go through this, that each one of them, Adam or Abel and Cain, were given a choice as they go through. They aren't forced to go one way or the other. God gives us a choice. There's no doubt that through the time as they were being raised up, their parents, Adam and Eve, must have been sharing with them about the way things used to be back in the garden and how, they were de- how, how Eve was deceived and how Dad stepped out into sin and did this as, as they're raising them up and telling them about this and then telling them about how they tried to cover up their sin with the fig leaves and, and how, how pathetic of an attempt that was to cover their sin and how God provided the sacrifice. He, he killed an animal and made skins and clothing for them. That had to be part of the conversation as they, were, as they were growing up and the foolishness of trying to do things on your own apart from what God commands. The sacrifice, the substitution that God did, the innocent animal that died to cover up their sin, their nakedness. And we see when we'll eventually, as we're going through the Old Testament, we're going to get to Leviticus it tells in Leviticus 17.11 about the sacrificial system. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. We see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We've got to understand that there's a reason behind this There's a reason behind why God prescribed it to be this way. It needed to be perfect blood sacrifice in exchange for our sin. And we see here in in, uh, Abel that he trusted in that too, what had been handed down to him from his parents and probably directly from the Lord as he was going to him. And here we see that he brings one lamb in a sacrifice for himself, in a trusting, in a faith in what the promise was that was coming. And later on, the Passover in Exodus, where we see one lamb, where they put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils, that was to, for, to, to cover the family. We see that as we go through the Day of Atonement that was set up, where one lamb is sacrificed on a specific day in the Jewish, Jewish year to, first, to cover the sin of the nation. 
but it all points to Jesus on the cross, shedding his perfect blood for the sins of the whole world. All of this is pointing to that, and we can't substitute anything for that. It was laid out again. God talked about this with them. I don't know the specifics. We don't have the conversations recorded, but there's obviously a sacrificial system that was laid out even this early because we see Noah, Abraham, Jacob, all the way through building altars and sacrificing to the Lord. And we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, speaking of Abel, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, it says. And we all know that Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God had passed down this. This is the way it's supposed to be done. But somewhere along the line, Cain said, I don't like this idea. I don't like this idea that this bloody sacrificial mess that I have to go through. Plus, I got to go to my brother Abel to get the stuff in order to sacrifice. What's wrong with what I'm doing? What's wrong with my own stuff that I'm making? I got these beautiful, this beautiful fruit, all of this stuff. Some people say, well, it's, the problem with the sacrifice was they, he probably picked the stuff up off the ground and brought that, his second best. That doesn't say that here. I would imagine that Abel probably brought, or Cain, I'm sorry, brought the best that he had. The problem is the best that we have means nothing. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. So even the best that we can bring falls short of what God requires of us. We need to understand that sin is disgusting. Sin is horrendous. And it causes sorrow and death. God didn't put together this sacrificial system that cost the life of animals and caused all this blood to be shed because he's some bloodthirsty God. It's because we need to understand the severity of sin and the in incredible penalty for that sin and what our Savior went through for us. Now, before we move on from this section, I... I, I were Adam and Eve good parents? Was that where the whole thing fell apart? We don't know. It doesn't tell us anything. As a matter of fact, it doesn't record anything that Adam ever said. Does that mean he wasn't involved? I don't think so. Like I said, I think that they were involved in raising them up because obviously Abel understood it. Abel got it. And the only reason I bring that up is because as a parent, and most of you in here are parents, we can beat ourselves up a lot by what happens with our kids when they grow up and make these decisions and go off the wrong path. We need to, as the Bible tells us, raise a child up in the way that he should go. That is our responsibility as parents, to teach them the truth, to show them the truth, but understand that when they become adults, they will make their own decisions, and it is up to them. We can't save our kids as much as we want to. They need to... They need to make that decision on their own. And Cain couldn't blame his parents for the upbringing that he had. He couldn't blame his grandparents. He didn't have any. He could only look to himself. And the righteousness of Cain was self-righteousness. And as we said, 
That's like filthy rags to the Lord. But the righteousness of Abel was faith. Faith. Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. His sacrifice was brought just in faith, trusting in the Lord. And the Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it moves on. They, have, they bring their sacrifices. Abel's is accepted. God loves the sacrifice because he's being obedient and understanding and in faith, believing in the promise. But Cain, in his self-righteous action, brings something of his own efforts, and it displeases God. And we see as verse 5 continues, it says, So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This word that is described here, very angry. That it, it really, very angry, we think of that, very angry. That's a good description of somebody who's really, really ticked off, but that is like the tip of the iceberg. This means like extremely furious. I mean, it, about as graphic as you can describe the anger that is boiled up within, within Cain. And here we see the word where it says, his countenance fell, the first reference to depression in the Bible. This overcoming dread that has come over him, severely depressed because of it. And we see in verse 7, again, like we talked about last week, when God came to Adam in the garden, he comes to Cain and he asks him, why? Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Again, he's not coming just like he did with, with Adam. He's not coming for information. He knows why. He knows Cain's heart better than Cain knows his heart. But he's coming to him again because he wants Cain to recognize it and confess it. He wants Cain to recognize the fact that he is full of anger, jealousy, envy towards his brother. And he wants him to simply just confess that and deal with it. And again, just like last week, when we are in those moments as Christians, we all face them. I'd love to say that since I became born again, I've never become angry, and I've never had a moment where I was down. But I can't. And we all go through those times. And when we are in those, again, God calls out to us and says, why are you angry? Why are you depressed? Why are you down? I'm going to get into an area here that I want to just preface with the fact that I realize that there are exceptions to what I'm about to talk about. But I want, I guess what I really want to hit home is it's the exception, not the rule. God clearly tells us in verse 7 what causes depression and how we deal with it. And our society today has said that depression is a chemical imbalance that can be fixed with drugs. 
And unfortunately, a lot of the church has bought into that. Christian psychiatrists going to that and saying, okay, you're clinically depressed, take this medication and you'll get better. God says the cause for depression here is sin. It's anger. It's bitterness. It's jealousy. It's things that have been boiling up inside of you that cause that. Now, please hear me. My heart is not to tell you that if you're depressed, if you're dealing with depression in your life, it's because there's sin in your life. I need you to pray about it, though. It's been proven. There's studies that show it. That depression affects the chemistry in our mind, not the other way around. It's not the chemistry mix-up that causes the depression. It's the depression that causes the chemical mix-up. And that is why a lot of the drug manufacturers, if you go on the websites, I did today to check out some of the things, they talk about most of the time, psychiatrists, doctors will, will set up a schedule for six to nine months to initially get it set up because their hope is they can get you to a point where we can get to the root of the problem in six to nine months, stabilize you and get you off. If it was a chemical problem that needed to be treated, it would be for the rest of your life. The problem is we're treating the cause. We need to treat the cause, I'm sorry, not the symptom. If I told you that I had a headache, what would you tell me to do? Take an aspirin, right? Well, if I'm looking at you like this and I say, I got a headache, and you say, well, take an aspirin. And then I turn like this and I got an ice pick sticking in the back of my head. What would you tell me to do then? <laughs> take the ice pick out of my head. <laughs> the, again, the, the, I, I want to be very careful here because I do understand that there are people that need help chemically to get things figured out. But again, that is far the exception than the rule. We had a very close friend of our family that went through something like this, that was dealing with some real issues in their life. And they went to a psychiatrist who was a Christian, and after one meeting, prescribed some medication for depression. After taking it for just a few days, this person said, I... I don't feel right about this. This just isn't, this isn't the right thing to do because they had been praying about it and God revealed to them that there was something that they needed to deal with in their life. And you know what it was? It was jealousy. And they dealt, they stopped the medication, they dealt with it, and they're free today from depression. There's excuses all around, everywhere. There's causes all around, but God tells us very clearly here, the cause is sin. It's, it's jealousy, it's envy, it's anger. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 32. Dan read from Psalm 33, so if you did turn there, just flip back one page. Psalm 32, Psalm of David. He said, how blessed is he, verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, amen? How blessed are we that our sin is covered, 
How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now here it is, verse three. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever of heat of the summer. Serious, heavy depression David was going through. But he says right up front, it was when I kept silent about my sin. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all who are upright in heart. God gave Cain a choice. He said, clearly, you can turn this way. You can, your, your countenance will be lifted up if you do well, if you do what you're supposed to do. Forget the self-righteous stuff and do what you're supposed to do, and you won't be depressed anymore. But you can choose to go in the way that you're going. And he said, sin is crouching right at the door. We have the same choice, every one of us, whether we are dealing with it on a once-in-a-while basis or dealing with it in a serious, serious way. Psalm 73 talks about the fact that this guy was looking around the world around him and became very jealous of what was going on. It seemed like people who didn't know the Lord, didn't love the Lord, were getting away with stuff. Man, they were just so blessed and everything was going so well for them. He didn't understand it. He became bitter angry towards God. But then it says, verse 23, until I went to the sanctuary of the Lord. When I got back right with God, then I understood it. Then it made sense to me. And we can look around. Jealousy is when we look around and we see how others are prospering and we say, I want that. I want what they have. How come I can't get a job? They got a job. How come I lost my house? They didn't lose their house. How come we're struggling in this way? How come I didn't get cured? They got cured. Jealousy is, I want what they have. Envy takes it to the next step that says, not only do I want what they have, I don't want them to have it. Unforgiveness, jealousy, anger. It really comes down again to a heart thing. And I won't stay too much longer on this point, but I do believe it's so important because we all get there. We all kind of step in and out of this, and it's so important as Christians that we understand this point. Psalm 51, verse 4, David was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He had, he had an affair with a married woman. Got, she got pregnant, and then he had the husband killed, covered it all up, thought he was getting away with it, was confronted with his sin, and he repented. And when he did, when he wrote Psalm 51, verse 4, he said, God against you, and you only have I sinned. 
Now, we would look at that and say, that's crazy. He had an affair with a woman and had her husband killed. Against God only has he sinned, but he had the right perspective about his sin. God, you only have I sinned. Against you only have I sinned. And far too often, we take that the other way, and this is where I'm getting to the bitterness, anger, unforgiveness part of what can cause this in us. We need to understand that if someone sins against us, if we look at it like Cain did, we say, he sinned against me, I'm going to take revenge. But if we say, you know what, that person ultimately and really didn't sin against me, they sinned against the Lord, I'm going to pray for them. It flips the whole thing around. It changes our whole attitude and outlook. It should. Because if we still hold on to the anger and bitterness when we understand that, we don't understand the cross. Because their sin was paid for, just like mine was. Depression. Anger, jealousy. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. All. You will keep in perfect peace. That is an incredible promise to you if you are suffering from depression tonight. You focus on God, you turn back to him, all who trust in you will be kept in perfect peace. And he, it says, you, God, will keep us in perfect peace. Not myself, you will do it. God warned Cain about the destructive power of sin. Cain could resist the sin and find blessing, or he could give in to the sin and be devoured. Sin is crouching at the door. We need to get right with God, get right with others, if there is something between you and another Christian, the Bible tells us that before you come and worship God, you need to go and take care of that issue. Leave your sacrifice at the altar, it says, and you go and make that right. The Bible tells us that as much as it has to do with you, be at peace with all men. If you're not, if you are holding bitterness and anger towards someone because of something they did and you're waiting around for them to come to you, that could be why you're depressed. God says, you go do it. As much as it has to do with you, you go make peace. I have to tell you, this week, I had an opportunity to meet with a couple who, there was a big misunderstanding between us. And I had gotten a hold of them, and I said, we need to sit down and talk through this, because the enemy would like nothing more than to tear our relationship apart. So we got together, and we sat down, and God restored that relationship. I don't, I don't want there to be any bitterness between myself or someone else because, again, I'm leaving the door wide open for the enemy, crouching at the door. We need to be careful because we can deceive ourselves, justify our actions. I'm fine. I'm good. We need to go before the Lord. Search me, Lord. Reveal to me if there's any wicked way within me. Now, moving on, verse 8 Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain again was here, was given a choice. Do right, do right, Cain, and everything can be restored. 
Or choose to continue down the path that you're on and sin is crouching at the door. Cain continued to go down the path that he was. Felt totally justified in his actions. Choosing to harden his heart. That always leads to further sin. If the Lord presses on you that you need to deal with something in your life and you ignore that, that hardening of your heart will continue on to more and more sin. And it's more and more grievous sin as you go. But notice again, God is just just amazing. Incredible, again, gracious. He comes, God goes to Cain again. And he says, where is your brother Abel? Again, giving him another opportunity to confess and come back, but he doesn't. He comes out with really just a bold-faced, defiant lie. What are you asking me for? I don't know. Am I his babysitter today? Why, why are you bothering me with this? And again, the Lord will come to us, asking us, in our heart, what are you going to do about this? What's going on with this? We can deny it. We can cover it up. We can pretend like it's no big deal, that it's not really there. But no, the Word tells us nothing concealed will that won't, there is nothing that is concealed that won't be revealed. It's going to come out, especially as believers. God doesn't allow us to continue down that road very long without pressing in on us. Jude 11 warns against the way of Cain. Pride, empty religion, envy, anger, hatred, murder. Jesus compared hating our brother murder asks the question am i my brother's keeper are we our brother's keeper are we each other's keeper well the answer is yes we are we are galatians 6 verse 2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens bear one another's burdens and when we do we fulfill the law of christ there's two guys out camping and they had woke up one early one morning and made the fire, started their coffee going. And all of a sudden, they look up the hill, and there's this grizzly bear charging down the mountain at them. Well, the one guy reaches over and starts putting on his tennis shoes. And the guy says, what are you nuts? You can't outrun that bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> That's not what I mean by bearing one another's burdens. That's not it. But... There's also another thing about bearing one another's burdens that it does not mean. It does not mean that if someone comes to you and shares with you about someone that they're angry with, that you get in the anger with them. That's not bearing somebody's burden. They're depressed. You get depressed too. That's not bearing a burden. The truth of the matter is, it also doesn't mean that you fix the problem. I got to be honest with you. I'm, you come to me and say, Pastor Brett, this is going on in my life. This is what I'm dealing with. I got to tell you, the vast majority of the time I'm going to be, I can't help you. I would love to hear and share with you and then take it to the one who can help you with you. That's what bearing one another's burdens means. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you. My load is light. He said, I'll carry the heavy burden. So that does not mean when, when someone brings something to you that you carry it for them. 
you carry it with them to the foot of the cross and you leave it there with him. With him. He's the one who has the answers. He's the one who can fix the problem. That's how we bear one another's burdens. I say that because there's going to be times, here's what you want to have happen. You go to somebody with a burden, something that's really heavy on you, and you say, I need help with this, and you share it with them. And you want them to almost start laughing. And you'd be like, I just shared all of this with you, and and you're laughing. He says, yeah, because we're going to go together to Jesus with this thing. The last thing you want is somebody to get all all bummed out with you. (laughs) Carry it to Jesus together. That's what it means to bear one another's burden. Well, he goes on, verse 10. The Lord says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. We don't, we don't get a whole lot about Abel in this. He's only alive for, for eight verses. But it tells us in, again, Hebrews 11, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. We see this as a picture. A type is what it's called of Christ. Abel is. Abel was a shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. Abel presented an offering that we saw was acceptable to God. Jesus became the offering that was acceptable to God in our place. Abel was hated by his brother, obviously, for doing no wrong. Jesus faced incredible hatred from his brothers, though he had done no wrong. Abel Abel obviously murdered. His blood was shed, as was our Lord's. But here's the big difference. We see here in these verses that Abel's blood cried out to God in condemnation of what Cain did. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, tells us that in comparing the Lord's blood to Abel's blood, Jesus' blood speaks better what it says. And what that means is Jesus shed his blood not in condemnation, but in redemption, in salvation for us. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now Cain, again, we talked about the fact that the original curse, that the ground was cursed. Now here Cain specifically is cursed It was going to be difficult for Adam to eke a living out, to make things grow, to get the ground to cooperate with him. It's going to be impossible for Cain. It won't produce for him. And we see later on that Cain is referred to, 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. 
And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We see in that that Cain had completely walked the way of Satan. Envy, jealousy. Well, verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here again we see the very sad ending of this story closing out. That even after all of that, Cain wasn't broken over his sin. He was bummed out about his punishment, but he wasn't broken over his sin. Pride had set in so hard with him, it was still, what about me? What about me? It's not fair. But God in his incredible mercy still placed a sign on Cain. We don't know what that sign was. We don't know what it, what it showed. But what it meant was, don't touch Cain. Don't lay a hand on him. God was protecting him. And we see that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Sin in our lives that we refuse to deal with. Hardening of our hearts leads to that. I don't want to be around the Lord. I don't want to be around people of God because I'm out of fellowship with God because of sin in my life. We probably all know people who have gone through that. Cain did. He chose to walk away, and it says, he settled in the land of Nod. Some of you are in that land right now, right? We're getting late. <laughs> That word nod literally means wandering. And as I thought about that, it kind of sounded kind of funny, but it's really true. He settled in the land of wandering. He settled in the land of wandering. The rest of his life, he was going to be wandering around. That's where he settled in. Restlessness, never happy here, always moving on. That's the life I've settled in. Too many people settle there. Where God really wants us to settle in is in his perfect will for us and then rest there. Again, Isaiah 26, 3, I read it earlier. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. If you're restless and never resting, you're not in that perfect peace. All who trust in you. Well, it goes on. Finish out the chapter here. Cain had relations with his wife. Here's the question that all people who don't believe, atheists, love to throw at us Christians. So who's Cain's wife anyway? Well, here's the real simple answer. Look real quick to next week. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. It tells us, Adam and Eve had lots of kids. 
Cain married one of his sisters or one of his nieces. And that was totally acceptable back then. It had to happen back then. So that continues on for quite a while. God doesn't make that against the rules for many, many, many years. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mehujiel, and Mehujiel became the father of Methusiel, and Methusiel became the father of Lamech. Now first of all, it says up here that Cain, Cain's son was named Enoch. That is not the Enoch that we're going to be talking about next week. That's not the one that walked with the Lord. This is the one who is in the line that doesn't follow the Lord. Now Lamech took to himself two wives. The first mention that we have of multiple wives in the Bible going directly against, as we talked about God's plan for marriage, Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, one man, one woman, one flesh, goes against that. Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, which means ornament, and the name of the other, Zilha, which means shade. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize names. I know there's a lot of meaning for names in the Bible. But I just want to touch on this real quickly. God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman. Committed to each other and each other only. That's God's design for marriage. Anytime it gets outside of that, we see a picture of this here. One will be an ornament and one will be in the shade. If, guys, you're looking at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or you're looking at pornography on the internet or you are having an affair, you are making that an ornament and your wife, who you are to be committed to, is in the shade. Ladies, same thing. If you are there, Stop it right now. Get out of it immediately. You are to be devoted completely and totally to your spouse. All right, moving on. Verse 20. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we see now uh, commerce starting, developing larger livestock, settling down. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe musical instruments. As for Zilha, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, a forger of all imp implements of bronze and iron for farming equipment as well as weapons, that was for. And his sister, the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilha, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then, sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Doesn't take long to continue down this whole bitterness, anger, revenge. I'm going to take my own revenge. I was he blames it on self-defense, but he's proud of it, boasting in it. I don't think it's any coincidence. Lamech said. You know, you're going to mess with me, you're going to pay back 77-fold. You're going to, you know, throw in this out. What did Jesus tell us to do? Not to take revenge 77-fold, but to forgive 
77-fold, right? Again, we see the clear divide between the way of the world and the way that we are to walk in as Christians. And we're going to see the line of Seth starting here. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. This is the godly line now. Abel has been killed. Seth, the godly line through which Noah will come. And she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth, that name means appointed. And we're going to get into names next week, and we are going to talk about their meanings. And if you've never heard this in Genesis chapter 5, if you've just skimmed over Genesis chapter 5 or skipped it because it's just a whole bunch of names and numbers, come back next week because there is something really cool about that when we go through it. God didn't put anything in the Bible for accident. But it says here that they called upon the name of the Lord. And I just want to touch on something here real quick, and then we'll pray and we'll go. But notice as we went through the line before, of, of Cain's line, it, started, it talked about their identity and what they did. They were tent makers. They were li- raising livestock. They were making music. They were, they were making bronze and iron weapons and everything. And that's how they were identified. And that's how often, so often, we're identified in the world today. Most of the time, after they ask you your name, the most questions when you meet a stranger is, what do you do? And we're identified by what we do. But as Christians, and as Seth Line says here, our identity is not in what we do, but who we serve. That is our identity as Christians. It's who we serve. Our worth isn't based on what we do, how much money we make, how successful we are in what we do, our worth is based on who we serve. That's where our value is. And again, next week we're going to look at Seth's line, the godly line. Well, let's pray and we'll close out that. Father, we thank you for your word and just your incredible blessing. Lord, it's difficult to go through these last couple of weeks, the sections here, because it's, it's just hard to see. Because, Lord, even though we'd like to say, man, that, that's just horrible, that's just, we see so much of ourselves in it. Lord, I pray that you do go through us. Search each one of us. Lord, that we would be open and receptive to hear from you, and Lord, reveal to us if there is any wicked way in us if we are harboring any jealousy or envy or, or lack of forgiveness towards someone else, show that to us, Lord, because we don't want that to continue. We want to be right before you, and we want to be right with your people. Lord, let us bear one another's burdens and fulfill your law by doing it, bringing all the burdens to you. Because you alone have the answers. Lord, we thank you for the fact that if we do trust in you, if we are focused on you, your promise is that you will keep us in perfect peace. And Lord, that's my prayer for all of us tonight, that we would be in that perfect peace. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, God bless you guys. We will see you this weekend. Have a, have a good rest of the week. my plan.